Hi everyone, you're listening to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Alison Mitchell, a practicing naturopath, and you can find me on naturopathnsw.com.au. These podcasts will feature discussions on various health conditions, health tips, and nutrition from a naturopathic perspective. Sometimes it's just me, sometimes I'm interviewing guests. All the time, I hope to share with you information on health and wellbeing with the aim to empower and educate. Please remember that all information is general and not a specific recommendation that replaces consulting with a practitioner. Please talk to your healthcare practitioner before undertaking any changes to your treatment regime. Welcome back to another episode of the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be continuing on from my previous podcast where I talked about all those drivers of chronic pain and inflammation. We talked about things like how hormonal health, gut health, how issues with our environment and our chemical load can have a big impact as well as well as the mind can have a big impact on chronic pain. And now today what I want to do is talk about how we actually go about treating pain from a holistic perspective. So to start, I want to talk about what our aims should be when we're treating pain. Firstly, it's important to look at reducing that pain directly. So to do this, we need to figure out, is it a neurological type of pain? Because if it is, that requires its own type of treatment. And then we also want to have a look at the inflammatory pathways that are affected. With herbal medicine, all of our herbs can actually act on different inflammatory pathways. This means that the immune system is doing different things to actually create that inflammation. And if you don't target the correct pathway, you're not going to experience as significant an effect from the treatment. This is one of the reasons why some people do report that conventional medicine can give them insignificant or insufficient rather effects because really it's only working on one particular pathway and um, with herbal medicine you know if you use the wrong treatment that's going to have the same issue one of the ways that herbs do work really well is that they actually can cross over on many different pathways and if you um, make the formula correctly then it will actually work on all of those appropriate pathways it is tricky to know what pathways you're treating that's where a trained herbalist will come in You also want to look at reducing the underlying causes of pain, which is those things that we covered all through the last podcast. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, I suggest you go back and have a listen to that podcast now. So these drivers, they'll perpetuate pain and inflammation, and that can be things like stress, tissue ischemia. This is a really common thing that I see when I'm doing my my massages is that people have got a lot of pain around areas that they just don't use all that much. And that is usually due to your work because if you have to be sitting down the entire day then working on a computer, then you know you're not going to be using those major muscle groups or those smaller muscles either, and so that um, they become quite stiff and blood flow tends to really not go through there properly. And also, if there's a lot of tightness in the muscle because of stress or those other issues, then the blood flow isn't going to go through as easily either, and so then that feels really uncomfortable and painful often when you're massaging it it feels a bit painful to start with as well because you're actually what you're doing is you're applying an ischemia type pressure but then you're letting more blood flow go through eventually as well another thing that can be an issue with causes of pain is mitochondrial dysfunction the mitochondria are parts of the cell that work on producing energy and so these are really really important little critters within ourselves and if they're not working properly we can have issues with all sorts of things but mostly fatigue but also pain. This is something that's quite commonly involved in conditions such as fibromyalgia. Another underlying cause would be things like tissue acidity or chronic infection, hormonal imbalance, toxicity, gut health, immune imbalances, issues with your physical structure or posture and genetics such as the MDHFR gene. The other thing that we want to look at doing when we're working on actually treating the pain is to promote relaxation and manage stress. 
So this is probably a little bit more complicated than it seems, but one of the best things that you can actually do is look at sources of stress that you can actually do something about in, in your life, as well as doing things that will actually relax you. You know, that's going to be different for everyone, but it might be incorporating mindfulness and meditation, or it might be just doing more things that are fun and enjoyable, taking time for you. It's also really important to increase the movement of energy throughout the body. Now you can take this on a few different levels. I mostly mean by actually exercising and doing other sorts of physical therapies. So you're actually getting that energy flowing. But and, and the physical therapies could be whatever you feel that you resonate the best with, such as massage or osteopathy or chiropractor or physiotherapy or reflexology. Um, but on a deeper level uh, and on an energetic level, this can also be looking at the deeper energetic level. And so this would be using things like acupuncture or flower remedies or homeopathics to help with this. We also want to look at achieving the alignment of our physical structure and of the tissues. And this is where practitioners such as physiotherapists and osteopaths or chiros could be quite helpful for that. And then the final thing that we want to be looking at when treating pain is addressing any of the consequences or the sequelae of chronic pain and inflammation. This can be, to name the most common ones, depression, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, as well as dealing with the side effects of the medications, which we talked in more detail about in the previous podcast. Overall, the treatment needs to be focused on improving the quality of life. Many practitioners now are using a quality of life scale to gauge their success rates. And keeping a pain diary is actually an excellent way for you to monitor your progress. It helps you to do things like keep track of your mood and how well you are able to perform your daily tasks. And that's really important in the reflection of the treatment of the pain and how that impacts on your quality of life. And in this same diary, you can record things like the activities that you've done, the food that you've eaten or the groups of food, how much you've slept and how good that was. Um, and you can, you can see if there's anything that makes your pain levels better or worse, like if there's a particular person or a particular activity like shopping or a particular food that makes that pain worse. It can also tell you if the pain is related to, for instance, your hormonal cycle, because hopefully if you're a female and you're menstruating, you'll be recording your period time as well. Um, or perhaps whether it reflects the lifestyle, sorry, the life cycle of an infection. So uh, Borrelia, for instance, which is the bacteria that's involved in Lyme's disease most commonly, that, for, for example, has a life cycle of eight weeks. And patients whose pain follows this pattern, you know, they, you know, you might need treatment for Lyme's disease. So I just wanted to go in, um, into detail and share with you some of the t different methods of treatment that I have found to be really helpful when I'm treating people with chronic pain. And I will also say that this is, you know, working alongside other practitioners such as a counsellor and other physical therapists where um, we can look at everything all together. So herbal medicine and nutrition are my main treatment areas in clinic and herbal medicine is probably one of my favorites. So when dealing with pain, I focus a lot on using the class of herbs called anti-inflammatories. And so these are a little bit different to the ones that are conventional anti-inflammatories because firstly, they don't work quite as strongly, but they also have much less side effects, if any, depending on the medication that's used. And they are quite broad acting across their anti-inflammatory activity in that they work on multiple inflammation pathways. And then the other benefit is that herbs have a lot of different properties going for them at the same time. So, for instance, turmeric. Turmeric is perhaps one of the most researched and respected herbal medicines. Turmeric has received a lot of attention because of its remarkable anti-inflammatory properties. It's a rhizome with a bright orange outside and a bright orangey yellow inside. And this herb has been used traditionally throughout Asia for more than 2,500 years, but for a long time, it was only known in the West as a cooking ingredient for its pungent flavor and its bright yellow coloring. 
It was first mentioned in Western herbal books in the 1930s, but it was only briefly mentioned, saying it was once a cure for jaundice. It was recognised for its properties in the digestive system and as a liver stimulant. And so herbalists will still use turmeric for that sort of property as well. It's particularly good in the digestive system for issues with stomach ulcers and gastric reflux as well. However, now turmeric has gained quite an iconic status and it's a bit of a hipster drink. You know, the golden milk and the turmeric lattes, they're sold in most trendy cafes. And a Google search for turmeric Google searches for turmeric have increased by 300% over the last five years. Researchers have at times referred to turmeric as Indian solid gold, a spice for life and an age-old herb for old age. It's been used throughout the ages as a herbal aspirin or herbal cortisone to reduce inflammation and discomfort which are associated with various anti-inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. In traditional Indian medicine, which is Ayurvedic medicine, since 1900 BC, turmeric has been used then for its anti-inflammatory properties for various conditions such as gynecological disorders, gastric and hepatic problems, infectious diseases and blood disorders. And the juice of the fresh rhizome is used as well in parasitic skin infections and in chicken Chickenpox, a coat of turmeric is applied to facilitate the process of scabbing and then healing. In traditional Chinese medicine, they use turmeric very similarly, and there are records of its recommendation to be taken by pregnant women in the last two to three weeks before labour to simplify the birth and also to improve the health of mother and child. Turmeric contains the chemical curcumin, and this has been studied in isolation in lots and lots of studies. It's found to have specific benefits in osteoarthritis. It protects the cells of the bones via antioxidant action and inhibits an inflammatory response in the joints and the bones. So all around, it's an amazing herb and it works really wonderfully as an anti-inflammatory. And you can use it as an extract um, or most commonly as a tablet or in your cooking. And when it comes to using it in your cooking, you can use it fresh, um, such as the fresh rhizome that you can grate, or you can use the spice powder as well. And this is the one that's the most easy to come by. I actually find that everyone seems to respond to it a little bit differently. So you have to play around with how you best respond to it. You might find that you need a combination of both the fresh and the powdered, or you might find that you're better off with just the powdered or just the fresh, or you may need a bit in your diet as well as taking a supplement. I usually find that, um, you know, that, that it is said that it works best when it's heated with some oil and some black pepper to get it into the cells. However, it doesn't seem to um, have that much more dramatic an effect. That's the traditional use. However, whatever you can do to get it into the system, you're going to get some benefit from that. So the other herb that I wanted to go into next is ginger. This beautiful herb, it's really widely available. You can use it for nausea and digestive complaints, but it's also great for inflammation. It has anti-inflammatory and analgesic properties, which means that it actually helps to direct directly reduce pain and it also has properties which reduce the buildup of the urate induced crystal formation of gout making regular consumption of ginger a good idea for those at risk of gout so you can have ginger in your cooking as a tea as an extract or a tablet and you can also use it topically you can make a poultice by soaking some cloth in an infusion made from grated ginger and hot water or you can make a compress by, by wrapping some grated ginger in a thin cloth like a chuck swipe or, or muslin and then actually applying that to the affected area and then wrapping that up in some, some glad wrap. And you can apply some extra heat if you want to, but there is quite a lot of heat in ginger anyway, so that will, that will be quite good for you. So you can use it for all sorts of different types of pain um, but particularly I do like it for arthritis but also for period pain. Most people know of ginger for its effect on nausea 
um, and travel sickness but it's just such a wonderful anti-inflammatory herb um, so consider it if you do experience inflammation as well particularly adding it into your diet as much as you can another one of my favorite herbs for inflammation is boswellia this is probably my favorite second perhaps to turmeric as herbalists we use the resin of the herb and it has anti-inflammatory anti-arthritic and analgesic activities and the oil from this herb is known as frankincense it works on both the what's called the cox and lox pathways that's cox and lox and also different um, other cytokine pathways as well as multiple anti-inflammatory chemicals so that's one of the things that makes it so wonderful it's been studied in arthritis in humans and it's showed a good reduction in pain scores and mobility as well or improving mobility in some people it's been shown to be helpful after its earliest seven days however um, in these people when they were studied no radiological changes were noted it just helped with their their report of pain it has also been helpful for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease which is something that i use it for quite a lot and by reducing inflammation in the gut it can also help to reduce systemic or overall inflammation because the herb is a resin it's best to take it as a tablet and to any herbalist listening you probably know that it doesn't mix well in a liquid with other herbs Devil's Claw is another wonderful anti-inflammatory herb. This looks like a gnarled arthritic hand. It's been studied in arthritis of the spine, of the knee and the hip, as well as in lower back pain. There was one particular study where they used a water extract and 60% of those who participated had approximately 80% reduction of pain after two to three months. Now that's pretty exciting for a herbal medicine when we're looking at pain reduction. This herb has been um, showing both anti-inflammatory and analgesic pain relieving effects. And it has also got a really strong bitter property. And this allows it to stimulate the digestive system and it can be quite helpful for those who experience a lowered appetite. But for those who have a very overactive or very, very overly acidic um, digestive system, this needs to be combined with other herbs to balance those effects out. So you, you may have heard of that aspirin was originally derived from a plant. Well, this plant is white willow. And the chemical within the plant is actually not as irritating as the gut until it's actually formed into aspirin itself. So the herb has been used since ancient times and reports go back to 400 BC. And the bark was often chewed for relief of pain or fever, but it can be very, very helpful for um, osteoarthritis as well. Willow bark, it actually contains the chemical salicin, which is the precursor to aspirin, which is acetyl salicylic acid. And so um, this property acts primarily as both analgesic and antipyretic, so reducing pain and reducing fever. And the actual mechanism is very similar to that of aspirin in that it works along the COX-1 and 2 pathways and it's also a non-selective COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitor. So it does work as an anti-inflammatory by, work, by working on reducing prostaglandin release. However, because it only specifically works on those pathways, it's not going to be helpful for, for everyone in that sense. Anyone who does experience really strong sensitivity to salicylates do need to be careful with this herb because it has quite a high amount. And because of the high salicylate content, it's while nowhere near as much as aspirin, it does have the potential for, for some anticoagulant and significant um, digestive side effects. However, it's considered to be quite safe. And the side effects would be things like some nausea or some vomiting, or uh, in rare instances, uh, some digestive bleeding. Celery seed is another awesome herb that works on anti-inflammatory pathways and you might actually find you have this herb readily available in your spice cupboard. If not, you can usually get it from fruit and veg shops or from the supermarket. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a lot of studies performed on it compared to these others herbs that we've talked about, but it is still a very popular herb for aches and pains. 
one of the constituents, apine, that's been shown to be anti-inflammatory and it also has a diuretic action. So this makes it quite good for arthritis and gout and any other form of inflammation that has a bit of a toxic component to it. It can be taken as an extract or a tablet or you can use it in your cooking or as a tea. Another herb you probably have lying around in your kitchen is chili. And this fantastic herb works as an anti-inflammatory and it increases circulation. And it's also very helpful as this allows a flow of nutrients to go to the areas of the body that need it. Chili contains a chemical called capsaicin and this works on a pain chemical within our nerves called substance P. And by depleting this chemical, the nerves can no longer send that message to the brain that we are actually in pain. So we can actually make use of this effect by applying chili topically um, in a cream or a poultice um, to areas that are sore, such as the knee. And so if we apply it every eight hours, it can be very helpful to reduce pain, improve circulation and decrease and improve inflammation. It do, you do have to be careful with it that you know you're not applying it on freshly shaved skin or anywhere that there's a nick or a graze because then it can be a little bit irritating and burning. And some people do find that they can only keep a, a poultice or a compress on for so long. However, creams which do have a lot more of a thick base to it can usually be tolerated a, a bit better. You just want to always start small for the first time that you're ever using topical chili. And the other thing is that you do have to be really, really careful not to get it in your eyes. So you'll wash your hands really, really well afterwards. Now, those are the main anti-inflammatory herbs I wanted to talk about. But herbal analgesics are also really helpful because while they don't reduce inflammation, they can help to reduce pain levels and they can also be really beneficial in the treatment of nerve pain or pain that's due to nervous tension and spasm. For instance, one of the herbs that I particularly love, Corydalis, that has a sedative effect as well as an analgesic effect. Californian poppy, for instance, also has a mild sedative and an analgesic effect. So one of the analgesic herbs which also has some anti-inflammatory properties is Jamaican dogwood. And this can be really helpful for people who experience migraines, nerve pain, muscle spasm, as well as stress. So these herbs are a little bit harder to come by when you're sourcing herbs for yourself, uh, but a herbalist does have access to them. So usually it's something that will be combined in your treatment protocol alongside other anti-inflammatories. It just depends on what is the driver of your pain. If you do have something like nerve pain as the primary cause, then the herbal analgesics may be the primary part of your treatment. So wonderfully, uh, herbal medicine can be so often used at home and we talked a little bit about how you can use chilli or celery or ginger and turmeric, but there are a few other things that you can do at home where you can actually make poultices um, to help with improving pain in certain areas, to improve circulation and just to improve the, cir the circulation of the nutrients in that area too. So a couple of my favorite things that you can use, uh, one is a mustard poultice. And so when you're making this, what you can do is mix about 100 grams of freshly ground mustard seeds with some warm water, talking about 45 degrees Celsius here, and you mix it into a thick paste. And so then spread that paste onto a cloth, such as a chucks cloth or some muslin, and then apply that to the skin. So essentially you've got the cloth and then the poultice um, and never would you directly apply the mustard to the skin because that could be quite irritating. So you'd leave that on for about one minute and then remove, just depending on how you're feeling. Now, another thing you can do quite easily is to make a castor oil poultice. So this is what, something that herbalists love and uh, castor oil is readily available. You probably can find it in the supermarket. It's a very pale yellow liquid that comes from the castor plant and it has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties. It helps to reduce, reduce congestion and it's very moving. So it's really good for joints that creak. It's lipophilic, meaning it's attracted to fat and oil. So it goes through the skin and adds lubrication or softness to a scar tissue area 
or uh, an area of spasm that's associated with scar scarring as well. Um, and it can also be really helpful when users are poultice on the abdomen for things like constipation, period pain, um, endometriosis, fibroids or cysts, as well as general inflammation and pain in that area. You can also use it to pull out boils. So it can be used over the lower back of a woman who is in labour, a pregnant woman, but you don't ever want to use it over the uterus or over the lower abdomen of a woman who is currently pregnant or could be pregnant because it is quite moving as well. So when you're making a castor oil poultice, you put the castor oil in a pan and you heat it and don't boil it, but bring it up to quite a nice hot warm temperature that you can pop in the skin and it feels hot but it's tolerable. Then you want to soak a piece of cloth or a face washer or a piece of flannel or something along those lines into the oil until it's saturated. And then you pop that cloth onto the affected area, cover it with a bit of plastic. Um, and then you want to be maybe putting another towel over the top of that and then a hot water bottle to keep the pack warm. And then you keep that pack there for a minimum of 15 minutes, but up to one to two hours or just as required. So for people who experience you know, um, uterine fibroids or endometriosis, I usually suggest doing it every day for a few weeks and then you can start spacing it out. If you're applying it to other areas such as your joints, you might, you might find that you can do it every second day or so. Now also we can't get away without talking about essential oils. Now I'm actually not an aromatherapist, so I'm not going to talk about essential oils in too much detail. But, of course, they do fit into that category that we're talking about, which is the topical application of natural remedies. And so essential oils, anything that causes basically an irritation or a reddening um, of the skin when you apply it, what it can do is actually help to improve circulation to the area. Now, you do have to be careful with that, and I usually suggest diluting the oil in a carrier of some sort, such as apricot kernel oil, or avocado oil, or sweet almond oil, um, because you don't want it to be too irritating. But the sorts of oils that you might look at using would be things like anything with menthol, such as peppermint, or oil of wintergreen. But you can also ha get um, mustard and chili um, because they have essential oils in them, those can be quite good um, in terms of that rubefaction property that we're talking about. So arnica is also considered to be a rubefaction as well as an analgesic, and a lot of people know about that herb. It's commonly used as a homeopathic for bruising and trauma, but the herb can also be applied topically for bruising to help increase the healing speed and also to reduce swelling. You can also use it for arthritis and inflammation pain. And you do you want to be careful any preparations that are made from the whole plant need to only ever be used topically and not consumed. However, the homeopathic that is safe to consume. Um, lavender oil is also another one that's quite good to apply topically too because it helps to relax the muscles and that goes really nicely with peppermint. One of the things that I quite commonly recommend to my patients is to make a potato poultice and that's really easy to do and what you do is you just get a raw potato and you grate it and then you can you can do it by itself or you can put some chili powder into it and then you wrap it in a chucks or a cloth and you apply that to an area that's sore such as you know your knee or your elbow or, or your lower back and then it's the same principle with the other um, use of poultices. So you go the poultice and then some plastic and then some heat. Or if it's got chili in it, you probably don't need to put any extra heat on it. And then you just leave it for as long as you can tolerate it. You can use potato on its own. And so that's really good for areas of pain and inflammation and arthritis. But it is also quite a good drawing poultice too. So you can use it for things like splinters and boils and all sorts of fun things like that. And another thing that is quite fantastic is cabbage. And so if you get the outer leaf of a green cabbage and bruise it, that can just be put straight on your sore knees or your lower back it's also fantastic for mastitis pain um, if you pop it on if, particularly if it's cold pop it on the breast and it will really be quite soothing and so then that will actually help to reduce a lot of that pain and discomfort in that area too so in terms of 
physical therapies, so moving on now, physical therapies are really essential when it comes to supporting your yourself when you're dealing with chronic pain and inflammation. So it depends on what you know you resonate with and we've already talked about it a little bit but my suggestions are to see someone along the lines of a physiotherapist or an osteopath or a chiropractor for supporting your balance. However you can also consider acupuncture, Bowen therapy, um, remedial massage, potentially even reflexology and it's also really helpful to incorporate a gentle balancing type of exercise along the lines of yoga or tai chi or pilates. You can actually see what's called a yoga therapist. This is different to going to a yoga class because a yoga therapist can actually give you specific exercises and recommendations that are individual to you and your injuries and pain. Similarly, if you do start an exercise regime it's a good idea to see an exercise physiologist because they actually have a really advanced understanding of the of the body and the effect that exercise has on it and so because they're so knowledgeable in this area they can recommend specific exercises to do or not do based on your injury now it's good to remember whenever you are doing any exercise and you you have a chronic pain issue remember that pain doesn't always equal harm so it's important to exercise if you have chronic pain because you need to stretch stretch and strengthen those muscles and to get the circulation moving and if you haven't been moving a lot recently it can be scary so you need to assess yourself do you have adequate strength balance cardiovascular fitness and flexibility to do the exercises that you want to do and if you're not sure check with your GP first or see an exercise physiologist who can guide you. When you start exercising what you want to do is set a what's called SMART goal. A SMART goal needs to be specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and also to have a time frame set up with it. So is it specific you know you want to actually say what is it that you want to do so you might say you want to walk the dog is it measurable is it something that you can actually measure so you can measure the time that you walked or the distance that you walked and see if you're improving with there as well and is it achievable do you actually have the resources do you have a dog (laughs) do you have a leash do you have somewhere that you can go for a walk safely do you have someone that can support you if you do feel like you get out somewhere and you're stuck if that's a bit of an issue for you so think about the resources that you would need to make it achievable for you and if it's not achievable then what do you need to do to actually make that happen or can you scale back your intentions also is it realistic so I I do recommend starting small and also you need to make sure that you've got a time frame because if you have a time frame it's more likely that your goals will happen so you say I want to be able to walk the dog for 10 minutes by next month and so you can work up to that and so you want to consider pacing yourself and taking small breaks throughout it even though you know you might be doing okay because if you push yourself too hard too quickly it will catch up with you later and you can potentially get a flare-up and this is pretty common actually so it's a good idea to have a plan in place if you do have a flare-up and that could be you know just a modified version of the exercises that you've intended to do and also allowing the time and a space for yourself to relax and to unwind afterwards So now let's talk a little bit about some nutritional supplements that can be really helpful for dealing with chronic pain. One of my favorite things to do is is to support people that have issues with their digestive health. And probiotics is a really fantastic area that we can actually look into for um, supporting digestive health. But specifically, there has been some research that's shown that probiotics are really helpful for people that deal with chronic pain. So one of the reasons that probiotics and gut health is important in general when we're dealing with chronic pain is that if we have a condition called leaky gut, the immune system is going to become more reactive. And so we get a release of LPS from, um, from the endotoxins in the gut and then this creates inflammation elsewhere. And it also disrupts the immune system and it makes us more prone to autoimmunity. 
If our immune system is creating a lot of inflammatory cells, such as inflammatory cytokines, this can interact with our opioid receptors in the sensory neurons, and it has a role in the modulation of hyperalgesia in the inflamed tissues. There has been some research on specific strains of probiotics for pain, and while generally the type of probiotic that you would use would depend on the, you as a person, uh, or your client, if there is a lot of inflammation, I generally use the strain of probiotic called Lactobacillus rhamnosus 299V. This particular strain of probiotic is helpful for inflammation across the board, but uh, it's also very helpful for inflammation in the digestive system itself. Another of my all-time favorite supplements is magnesium. I consider magnesium to be like a soft blanket for all types of pain and inflammation. Now one of the mechanisms that we see going on in chronic pain is there is an abnormal activation of the receptor which is stimulatory. It's called the NMDA receptor and it makes our nerve and our pain cells hyper excitable. Magnesium can help with actually reducing the potentiation of the pain signaling which antagonizes the overactivity of those receptors. Low levels of magnesium in the body make you more likely to be sensitive to pain, but you can actually use magnesium as a supplement to correct abnormal pain pathways as well. Generally with nutritional supplements, uh, you don't have to be nutritionally deficient in that particular nutrient to actually receive benefit from taking it because we can actually use it to um, address certain pathways or actually um, have, an, have a specific effect. And so with magnesium, it does help with reducing pain signaling. There's been some studies on it as well. Uh, so eight weeks of 300 milligrams per day of magnesium citrate helped people with fibromyalgia and it was shown to reduce the number of tender points. Intravenous magnesium has also been shown to be helpful, um, particularly when it's followed by oral magnesium. And this helps to enhance the conventional treatment for lower back pain that has a neuropathic component to it. So um, for instance, yeah, if you've got back pain that's related to your nerve issues, definitely look into this um, intravenous magnesium followed by the oral therapy. You may struggle to find a doctor who will be accepting of this type of treatment, but it's certainly an avenue to look into. So consider magnesium if you've got something like neuropathic pain, persistent pain, inflammatory pain, or complex regional pain syndrome for which you might need some IV magnesium for as well. Also consider it if you've got tension type headaches. So the dose you're looking for is around 400 to 500 milligrams of elemental magnesium daily. And that will just help to relax the muscles and reduce stress. And depending on the type that you use, it, it can sometimes upset the gut. So the oxide form in particular. So choose a glycinate or citrate or amino acetylate form instead, which tend to be a lot better tolerated. For magnesium as well, when it's added to anti-inflammatories, seems to make the anti-inflammatories more effective. So for example, magnesium and painkillers like a paracetamol or a natural alternative is, is turmeric. Together, those seem to work better. Fish oil is another classic. So 2000 milligrams of fish oil daily has been shown to help to reduce inflammation. And we know that our diet often contains the wrong ratio of omega-3 to 6. And sometimes we're not getting enough omega-3 at all. And while there are a lot of studies that do provide conflicting information on fish oil, from what we can gather, it's not that it's not generally effective, but rather there are some instances where it does work and some where it doesn't. Generally, it will depend on your diet, your genetics and your other health conditions. One of my other favorite nutrients to use is L-theanine. This is an amino acid and it works on the nervous system in the brain. It's derived from the tea plant, Camellia sinensis, and it makes up about one to 3% of the weight of the dry leaf and it contributes to a lot of the taste of the green tea. What it's actually doing is stimulating the alpha brain waves similar to those achieved during meditation. 
one of the main things that it does is reduce anxiety and induces relaxation. And it works within about 30 minutes and it can also cross that blood brain barrier. Unlike caffeine, it has a relaxing effect, but like caffeine, it helps you to feel more alert, which is because it stimulates those alpha brain waves um, and also it helps to increase the calming neurotransmitter GABA. So it can be helpful for supporting pain pathways because of the way that it relaxes you and reduces that mental side of pain. Now, vitamin D, uh, low levels of vitamin D are common in those people with chronic pain. However, whether it works to treat pain is uncertain, and it may also depend on the type of pain. Muscle and bone pain, for instance, it works quite well for, but nerve pain, it doesn't seem to help as much. We know that vitamin D has a really big role in the immune system, and deficiency of vitamin D can actually worsen autoimmune conditions or potentially make you more prone to infections as well. So you're looking at your blood tests, you want to aim for your vitamin D levels to be around 70 to 120. Another favorite nutrient of mine is MSM, also known as methyl sulfonyl methane. This is an organic form of sulfur, which is a nutrient that's really important for our body's functioning. It's especially important for joint tissue where it functions in the stabilization of the connective tissue matrix of our cartilage, tendons and ligaments. So if you choose to supplement with MSM, you want to be taking it about twice a day as its half-life is 12 hours. In the 1930s, some scientists found that patients with arthritis were actually deficient in sulfur and its use as a supplement has grown since then. And it's been studied in the treatment of osteo and rheumatoid arthritis, as well as muscle pain and also leaky gut. We know that it helps to repair the lining of the gut, which is important for addressing one of, addressing one of those underlying causes of chronic pain. It lowers inflammation and supports the immune system. And it also helps to remember, repair muscle fibers, which are damaged during exercise, reducing muscle pain and spasms. Bonus. It's also good for hair and skin health. Generally, it's well tolerated and your doses of this would be anywhere from 500 milligrams to one gram, two to three times a day. Proteolytic enzymes are also something that can be quite helpful. Essentially, enzymes are anything that are in our body that causes a reaction to occur. And there are a lot of different types and a lot that we can make ourselves and some we get from food. Proteolytic enzymes are a type of enzyme that actually break our protein down into the um, smaller parts of protein, amino acids. And so these are really helpful for muscle recovery and they also help the body to respond to inflammation. The three main proteolytic enzymes are pepsin, which is made in our gut, bromelain from pineapple, and papain from papaya. These help with digestion, but they can also be helpful for people with pain and inflammation by improving blood flow, improving wound healing, and indirectly by improving digestion, because if the digestive system isn't working properly, you're more prone to inflammation. Coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10 can be helpful for those with pain due to issues with their mitochondria or who are experiencing pain as a side effect of statin medications. It's suggested that all people on statin should actually take CoQ10, but this isn't as widely practiced as it should be. So those are my favorite supplements and nutritional supplements to help people with pain. And so obviously you, you don't wanna look at using all of them at once. You pick and choose based on what's going on for you. But diet has a lot to do with it as well. And we talked a bit about diet in the last episode uh, on pain, um, but let's talk about you know how we can actually eat to reduce inflammation. Because as you know, a lot of people are eating what is referred to as a pro-inflammatory diet. It's also known as the standard Australian diet or SAD diet. And this sets you up for a state of increased pain and reduced healing. It's essentially, it's a diet of refined processed foods, which is low in nutrients and vitality. And this is so common in Australia. So what actually should we be aiming for with our diet? We should be aiming to eat mostly whole foods. We should eat foods that are fresh, 
local and in season. We should eat organic where possible and we want to increase our fruit and vegetable intake to nine serves daily. We want to increase our omega-3 fatty acid intake, which is fish, nuts and seeds, and reduce simple sugar. We also want to optimize blood sugar level control, avoid trans fats, avoid food chemicals and toxins, and also try to add herbs and spices when we're cooking. Fruit and veg to focus on in particular are those that are rich in antioxidants and polyphenols. So a variety of colors in the diet is what helps you to achieve this. Prebiotic foods such as onion, leek, garlic and legumes, they can actually help to fuel the good bacteria in your gut. And so that's really important as well because we know how important the gut health is. Spices that you want to add to your diet in particular include turmeric, ginger and cloves but just because the other herbs and spices that are out there haven't been studied in pain doesn't mean that they might not be helpful either so as with most things eating a variety is a great way to approach it recently i've been paying attention to some um, studies on the spice nigella which is black cumin sometimes referred to and that's been shown to be really helpful for lowering histamine levels and as you remember from last time, histamine intolerance and excess histamine can be a factor for some people with chronic pain. So that's another interesting one to keep an eye on and to include in your diet. There are also some foods that can aggravate pain. For a lot of people, the proteins in wheat, dairy and eggs are difficult to digest. And this can upset the immune system within the gut, which worsens inflammation and pain levels. These foods in general can be problematic, but it's possible to have a sensitivity to any food and doing an elimination diet or getting sensitivity testing done through a naturopath can be a good way to identify these issues. For some people, the chemicals within the foods can cause a reaction, and so eliminating the groups of foods containing these can be helpful. This could include a reaction to salicylates or amines and histamines. And of course, I can't talk about diet without mentioning the acid and alkaline diet. So this is something that a lot of people have been referring to in the natural medicine world for a long time. And personally, I don't think that there's anything really wrong with following this style of diet itself. However, I think that the reason that it works isn't because of the pH of a food, because I actually do think that there are some flaws in um, how that diet was formed in the first place and how those, uh, the pH of those foods was actually identified. But if you do look at the acid and alkaline diet, what you can see is that it's a diet that's really, really high in vegetables. And, and this is gonna be good for you for so many reasons as we've already spoken about. So there are a couple of things in the acid alkaline diet that you are recommended to eliminate, uh, which I actually think can be helpful, but it just depends on you as a person. So in particular, I'm referring to the legumes. I think these are really good sources of prebiotic fuel to feed your good bacteria. So if you can tolerate them, please do include them in your diet. Having said that, Everyone is an individual and everyone's got to identify what it is that they're actually, you know, doing the best with, with their diet. So let's move on to the final aspect of things to talk about, which is the mind. The mind has such a massive role when it comes to chronic pain issues. And don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way saying that things are all in the mind, but the way that a person approaches their pain mentally and, and thinks about it actually has been shown to have a big impact in regards to the way that they can recover from pain. So if you can identify your negative patterns of thinking that can be quite helpful in order to address this side of things because judging pain not only doesn't allow it to go away it can make it feel worse. In people who practice mindfulness regularly, uh, what they're actually doing is going through and actually um, taking away the judgment that they are feeling towards the pain that they're experiencing. And it's been shown that in those who are practicing this, it actually is quite helpful. If you can distinguish between pain and suffering, change is possible. 
And as the saying goes, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So that's why I recommend practicing mindfulness regularly. It's about the acceptance of what you're observing in the now without judgment or trying to find solutions to get rid of something. And of course, while it's understandable to want to fix something like pain, mindfulness practice done regularly has been shown to improve quality of life and pain scores in those who practice it. It actually helps to rewire the brain to modify the pain response, which is important as in chronic pain, the pain signaling is chronically amplified. So the chronic pain requires the brain to magnify that pain response. Meditation and mindfulness can help you to untangle the tangled synapses and it can also reduce inflammation, which is always a bonus. So you can help to rewire the brain with various things. Um, things like becoming more social has been shown to be helpful. Regularly practicing mindfulness and also regularly doing fun activities. So of course you want to find what works for you the best. So this might be doing uh, uh, puzzles or listening to audiobooks or um, gardening or going for walks or having you know social meetups for instance. So it's also um, going back to what we were talking about before, which is pacing. And so when you're regularly practicing any sort of activity, you want to be pacing it out as well. But it's also something that does fit into this discussion about the mind because you've also got to, you know, understand that you can only go so far. Another thing that I often recommend to people is to keep a, a diary or sort of symptom diary. And so you would be looking at actually monitoring your symptoms, but also your emotions for that day. And that can help you to identify not only your progress, but it also helps to um, identify when you are experiencing a particular emotion or potentially even when someone or some event makes your condition feel worse. So while that's not always completely avoidable, you may be able to, you know, make some changes in your life where you're actually able to remove those sources or those triggers for your pain. And I guess the final thing to talk about in regards to the mind is that swearing out loud actually really does reduce the severity of acute pain. So, you know, whenever you're in pain and you feel like you want to swear, if you can get away with it, do it because it'll make you feel better so thanks again for listening i'm going to be following this one up with another podcast that's a little bit shorter but specifically talking about fibromyalgia so if you've had any sort of um, benefit from today or if you'd like to provide some feedback please let me know i'd also love it if you can leave me a review on itunes preferably five stars because that helps to spread the word of, of this particular podcast or you might like to share it on social media if you have any further topics that you'd like me to cover or anything like that please also send me an email to get in touch so you can get hold of me via my website which is naturopathnsw.com.au or email me alison at naturopathnsw.com.au so I really do hope that this information is helpful for you. Thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Bye.